Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Lopez. Thanks for tuning in. Today we're sitting down with Milo Bertram. You are based in where? Cordova, Alaska. So how did you end up in Cordova? I, I lived in Montana for 20 years before that, and I, I work as a wildlife biologist, and my work on some elk and moose projects for the University of Montana was coming to an end. I wanted to see Alaska. We had done our honeymoon in Alaska like 20 years ago, and uh, I uh, looked at jobs in Alaska, and I was applying heavily to Forest Service jobs in Alaska, and Cordova, Alaska came up, and we didn't know anybody who'd ever been there, never didn't know anything about the place, and I ended up accepting a job as a biologist uh, working on the subsistence program for the Chugach National Forest, and 20 years later, here I am. It's a small town off the road system. It's accessible only by ferry or by airplane, uh, roughly 100 miles, 150 miles east of Anchorage. Um, and it's, it's beautiful. It's where the Copper River Delta, it's famous for its commercial fishery for Copper River salmon. It's right on Prince William Sound. So yeah, it's kind of got everything you think of when you think about Alaska. It's, it's, it's a wonderful place, a small, safe community where you know everybody. And yeah, we've been there quite a while now. So I've followed your work for a long time on Instagram and I've also we, you told me a story earlier about Don Jones. More than once, Don Jones would say, my friend Milo, and I never knew Milo, but I was like, huh, one of these days I'll probably meet Milo. And we met up on, we were photographing moose just here recently, and, and you were actually working on another project, and I just asked you, hey, can we do a podcast? And Because I think your photography is amazing, and I wanted to just talk to you about that, but getting a little bit of your background is pretty cool. And I think... So many photographers, I have a degree in biology as well, right? So I think we all start out with this love for the outdoors. And somehow, some way, a lot of us kind of gravitate to this whole photography thing. So it's pretty cool that, how did you get started in photography? It goes hand in hand with just a fascination for wildlife. And, you know, since I was a kid, you know, whether it was catching snakes and lizards or, uh, you know, some hunting and fishing, and then moving to Montana uh, in the early 80s, starting, uh, you know, to study wildlife. I just have always enjoyed being around wildlife. And then uh, in the early 80s, I, I got a camera for Christmas, a Canon AE-1 program was my first camera body. And then uh, I worked on a wildlife refuge, and that refuge, uh, Bedoin National Wildlife Refuge in eastern Montana, uh, that refuge had a Nikon camera and a 500 millimeter reflex lens. And they said, you can use it and take all the pictures you want. Just give us some of them. And, you know, there's right brain and left brain. And, you know, certain people just gravitate to the satisfaction of capturing images of, of what they love, you know, in, in my case, wildlife. And so I just couldn't get enough of going around the refuge in my free time and taking wildlife pictures. And uh, later, I got a job. I was a, a waterfowl nesting study. I was working for a graduate student at the time. And then later, that same season, I got a job on an elk study in western Montana. And uh, a 
friend, a graduate student uh, that I knew, talked me into a Canon 300 f4 to use with my AE1 program, and it was you know much better quality than the reflex lens. And it just took off from there. I just couldn't get enough of it. And so no matter what I've done, you know, whether, you know, my wildlife studies or where I've lived, um, I love observing wildlife and hunting and fishing and hiking and backpacking and backcountry skiing. But I've always come back to capturing photographs of all kinds of wildlife as, you know, one of my favorite things. So let's back up a, a little bit for your job and what you're doing. That's all wildlife oriented. And what is that? Well, right now, a lot of my work has been with ungulates, uh, moose and elk in particular when I was working in Montana. And that's what helped me get this job working in the uh, subsistence program for the Chugach National Forest. Alaska is much different than any other state in that uh, there's a federal law that gives uh, rural residents, that's people outside of big cities like Anchorage, a preference when it comes to fish and wildlife. And if there's not enough to go around, rural residents might have a preference uh, for it. And in the Cordova area, for instance, uh, there's a, a limited uh, moose herd and there's permits that are available. Uh, well, the, through the federal subsistence program, uh, I do actually do a drawing for moose permits that are only available to Cordova residents, whereas if it was a state draw, all, all state residents. So I help implement that program. And there's fisheries, uh, federal subsistence fisheries, as well as hunting. And so I work on that. It involves working closely with Alaska Department of Fish and Game. Uh, we assist with uh, uh, moose surveys and mountain goat surveys. Uh, we monitor black-tailed deer in Prince William Sound. Um, the most exciting thing that I'm working with right now is a black bear project, a black bear study in Prince William Sound. So starting in 2016 for three years, we were capturing and radio collaring black bears because uh, we were had some evidence that the population was down and were interested in habitat use and how, that, that, how they're adapting to you know, hunter pressure in, in Prince William Sound. So we started this black bear study. And Many of your listeners have probably heard of our project, whether they know it or not, because of one of our radio collared females uh, that was in a den with her cubs was poached by uh, a man and his son from Wasilla, actually, or, or near there. And uh, it was a sad and tragic story, but I just happened to have had a trail camera on that den because we were going to monitor uh, just kind of on, as was convenient, we put uh, trail cameras on just a few dens so we would know if our females had cubs or not when they came out of their dens. And we just so happened to have picked this den where this incident took place and pretty tragic. But it made national and even international news. Well, it's good when that stuff makes news like that because people need to know that that's not cool yeah. and that's just one of those, Yeah, you never know. Especially these days, trail cameras are everywhere. Right. I have a hard time peeing in the woods. <laughs> well, I don't want to give the impression of Big Butt Brother. We had literally three cameras in all of Prince William Sound. And of who knows how many bear dens there are in Prince William Sound. Uh, we happened to pick that one. How many bears did you collar? We collared, we captured 106 bears over three summers and uh, got collars on 53. And so the ultimate study is just habitat and population decline, and you're trying to figure out why. And yeah, and and, and a, a big push, or you know, one one of the reasons behind it was looking at how 
bears use habitat and how that relates to areas that are accessible by hunters, because most hunter access is by boat in Prince William Sound. I mean, we we want to see how those interact. And then we're making our uh, samples, genetic samples available for other populations that are, uh, might, go, might, take, might take place. So you said three years, you start, three years ago you started. How long does it go? How long does um, that study go? We were collaring bears in 2016, 17, and 18. And uh, the first batch of collars dropped off last fall. We got some collars that just dropped off the other day. And we'll have the animals we caught in 2018 will last until uh, next fall. So there's still a couple more years with the data yeah. collection right. and then analyzing that data and figuring everything It'll go out. right about till my retirement. Oh, <laughs> and, and it's been a joy to work with. I, I love working with bears. I'm fascinated by them. And, and I've worked with uh, bears in the past. I worked on a, uh, a grizzly project in Montana back in the early 90s. And uh, yeah, to get my hands back in that has been very exciting. And so, yeah, it's a great thing to be back into again. So for people don't, that don't know, you had alluded to the population in Cordova and giving preference to that population for the permits and things. How big is the population? What is Cordova? Can you just kind of describe Cordova just for the people that have no clue where it's at or what it is? It's in the middle of nowhere. It, it's, a, it's a commercial fishing town. It has very little tourist in, infrastructure, so, so it's not like some of these towns that cruise boats come to. It's an authentic uh, commercial fishing town in eastern Prince William Sound, uh, year-round population of about 2,000 people, and then they say around 4,000. The, the town roughly doubles in the summertime uh, to around 4,000 people with the commercial fishermen and processors and things like that that come in. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. It's a small place. You, you kind of know everybody, you know, especially having been there close to 20 years now. And it's safe. You know, we don't lock our cars and our houses. And, uh, you know, if we ever leave there, we'll never get that lifestyle back. Um, we, we hunt and we fish and uh, uh, eat halibut and salmon and moose and deer. And, uh, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful place. Uh, it's gotten a little harder to get to get to because uh, ferry service has been cut back so much. Um, um, but still, uh, you can't get there by ferry and fly and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's phenomenal and, and surrounded by great wildlife. So it's a wildlife photographer's dream in some ways. Kind of specialized here in Anchorage where we are right now. You do have access to the road system and uh, a lot more space, but there's some things about Cordova uh, that I just take for granted anymore, like sea otters and trumpeter swans. And um, I can photograph bears. They're a hunted population, but there's some places where uh, bears come to salmon streams and are observable. Uh, not quite the same as going to Denali or the Alaska Peninsula, but still opportunities with bears. And yeah, we're, and shorebirds. Uh, Cordova's famous for its shorebird migration. And that's one of my favorite photographic subjects is the uh, shorebird migration uh, on birds on their way to the Arctic in the spring. We have a great uh, festival in the springtime that's worth visiting uh, and photographing. Well, you're pretty famous for your shorebird photography, I would say. I mean, you look at your Instagram feed, and it's pretty amazing. It's one of my specialties, uh, for sure, because of where I live. Before I moved there, I knew what shorebirds were, but I, I've come to appreciate them and uh, really enjoy photographing the migration You know, since uh, moving there. So tell me a little bit about that. For You know, it's a big thing to do. I mean, 
it's easy to get a picture of a bird, right? But to get that cool picture, there's a lot of work that goes into it. And you have to be willing. I think you and I were talking the other day in the field, and you're like, I'm pretty hard on my gear. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about, or walk us through the process of how, what you're doing on a, you know, I guess a seasonal basis to get these really cool, dramatic pictures that you actually get. Well, what's special to me about the shorebird migration is the numbers, and the Copper River Delta is a stopover over point on the uh, Pacific Flyway for birds working north in the spring. Early May is the main time, and four to six million shorebirds uh, use the Copper River Delta on their way north, and there's very little of it road accessible, but uh, one particular bay is, the mud flats at one particular bay is uh, uh, road accessible, and thousands, hundreds of thousands of shorebirds use it. And when you hit just the right days, uh, these massive flocks, and uh, when they roost together, I call them carpets or mats. These solid mats of roosting birds are just, I mean, aesthetically, it's overwhelming. It's just beautiful. And then the landscape, you know, we're living in a area with rainforest and mountains and glaciers. So the landscape surrounding it is, is really nice. And so it just makes for great photography and it involves, you know, to get good pictures, um, getting low and getting muddy, uh, sitting in waders and letting the tide push birds to you. Uh, I think I told you the story the other day of not paying attention to the tide rising. I'd set my pack and a lens, my 100 to 400 down, and uh, I was sitting in my waders with my tripod and I looked back and saw my lens knocked over, lapping in the waves, and somehow it seems to have survived. I don't know how I've dodged that one. Uh, time will tell if any problems uh, crop up uh, later. But uh, yeah, there's risk. And I've damaged some very expensive equipment uh, working in and out of our boat in Prince William Sound. Uh, we have a, a, a Hughes Craft, a 22-foot skiff that we can overnight in do a lot of photography around Prince William Sound out of that. I've trashed a 600. My tripod has corrosion like nobody else's tripods ever get. Uh, I have to replace them every once in a while because of that. Yeah, it's a hard environment on gear anyway. Uh, and I think I'm also hard on my stuff. So let's talk about the gear just for the, the bird stuff. Because you got to be wide angle, you got to have that mid range, and then you have the big range, you know, yeah. the, big, the big guns too. So what, how do you figure out i mean do you have all that stuff with you every day or do you say okay today's a 600 day and i'm going to just do the 600 yeah a little bit what i consider a wide angle shorebird image isn't really taken with a wide angle lens it's taken with probably my 100 to 400 so i'm probably using just two lenses for most of that photography that and a 600 and you know i carry you know, if I have my 600 on a tripod, I'll have my 400, one to four in a, in a pack. And you just got to be judicious about where you set it down or maybe don't set it down. Um, and I, I try to mix it up. You know, if there's a cooperative flock, uh, I'll try to work it both ways. Um, and yeah, I think I often have both lenses with me. Some of the shorebirds are especially wary. In recent years, I've focused... Uh, on red knots, which are a bird that comes to the barrier islands, uh, not in closer to the road system. It's mostly boat accessible and working these vast tide flats out literally in the middle of nowhere, just the Gulf of Alaska beyond you. And um, those birds are wary, and I'm not taking 
wide angle or, or zoom shots of them. I'm, I'm lucky to get them close enough to get interesting images. And uh, so some of this, some of these birds are more wary and I'm strictly using a 600 to get photographs. So I was going to ask you, uh, we say shorebirds, but there's so many, right? Do yeah. You, so, and you just said one that I've never even heard of before. I mean, Red I'm sure I've, yeah. yeah. So what are some of the species that you, like, what's the most prolific species? And then what are some of these other species, just like the red knot, that are, that you get a chance to see and photograph? Well, the bulk of the migration is western sandpipers. Of the four to six million uh, birds, most of those are western sandpipers. There's also impressive numbers of dunlins and leaf sandpipers, and that makes the overwhelming majority of, of the birds that, that come through and that impress people. Uh, these clouds of swirling birds in the air, and it, it is you know, truly phenomenal. And we've had fantastic birders and bird photographers come to see Cordova and speak at our festival, but also photograph. I've got to photograph with Arthur Morris and Kevin Carlson. I'm kind of friends with David Sibley. He's come and spoke with us, and we've entertained him as a visitor uh, before, you know, just the kind of the guru of, of birders in North America. And um, we've had great writers uh, come. And so it attracts, I think it's spectacular enough that it attracts people from far and wide uh, to, the, to this festival and to see this migration. And, um, and then smaller numbers of other species like the red knots or godwits or wimbrels. And uh, yeah, I, I don't have a count of the species. It must be in the teens of species that we uh, you know, see on a year-to-year -year basis. Uh, a fascinating thing, this spring, I was photographing uh, birds like uh, red knots on the outer islands, and I saw uh, Hudsonian godwit, which is an uncommon bird uh, on, on, that comes through the Copper River Delta in small numbers. And I always want to photograph one if I get the opportunity. And me and a, a gal that's an uh, up-and-coming biologist studying biology uh, noticed a leg band on, on, the, on, on one of the birds. And whenever I see that, that's the scientist in me, I want to help document it. I want to get a photograph of it and then send it to some ornithologist friends of mine and try to track down where it came from. Hudsonian godwits are one of the world's great long-distance migrants, and so I knew there was a potential that you know, it could show something neat. This bird was banding, banded in Tierra del Fuego, the very southern tip of South America, um, a place called Bahia Lomas, and I was photographing it in Alaska on the Copper River Delta as I, I plugged in the two places on Google Earth. It was 8,800 miles uh, between where it was banded and where I, I photographed it, but that's only as the crow flies. These birds migrate through the Great Plains, and uh, so the actual distance it migrated, and it does this every year throughout its life, is over 9,000 miles, uh, surely. One way. One way and they do it twice a year. Uh, so anyway, everybody knows something about bird migration and Arctic terns and stuff like that, but when you can put a face to it, you know, see an individual bird, and actually I put that on my Facebook page, and I posted it on my Instagram page too, but on Facebook it got more likes than anything I've ever put on there before. It got shared almost as many times and uh, as, as it was commented on, which I thought was interesting, and yeah, it really stirred people when they learn about how the world's connected 
for one, and how what you do in one place can affect something else. So you know that's what shorebirds do, and that's the purpose of our festival is trying to highlight this uh, and why conservation of a wetland in heavily developed California might affect what we see on the Copper River Delta or what breeds in, in Arctic Alaska or what's wintering in Tierra del Fuego. So yeah, it's incredible. And yeah, shorebirds are a really good thing. That's why, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I've, I've become very interested in them and why they're one of my favorite subjects, but I just kind of landed on, you know, a, a really great place for it. Talk about one of your expeditions, because if you having a boat is pretty odd. It's my dream, right? Yeah. I would love to have a boat and travel Southeast Alaska just all summer. Just because I think the things that you would see would be awe-inspiring and remote, and you probably can go for a quiet, a long time and not see another person yeah. if you really want to, right? So if you're kind of going to key in on some species, how do you plan that expedition? You're like, okay, so I got a boat. I'm going to need a dinghy or I'm going to need a – what? how does that work? What do you do? And and is it is – it, uh, are you – does, do you ever get an apprehension like, eh, that's a little sketchy. I could end up in this really weird spot. Or is it always somewhere that you're like, okay, I can do this and I've done it before. Or, or how many times is it brand new? And you're like, I'm just going to try this out. Well, it's we've it's grown over time. And you know now we've owned two boats. And, and I don't have a big boat. Uh, I have a 22-foot boat. I, I'm not taking long trips uh, like live aboard boats that people, you know, travel up and down the coast of Alaska. I'm not doing that sort of thing. And because of my full-time job, I'm more of a weekend warrior uh, after work and weekends uh, doing trips. And we do overnight trips uh, for sure. Um, But we're picking weather. You know, now I have a lot of hours on on boats. Uh, Our first boat, I think I put 2,000 hours on and this boat is coming up on 3,000 hours and so just over time you learn the waters and most of all you learn the weather and when to go and not to go Um, and you know picking and choosing that sort of thing. Um, Some of the trips if I want to go across the sound the western sound which is actually more accessible to the road system people who come out of Whittier or something uh, but I need to come over here if I want to photograph uh, things like black bears. There's a very rare, almost an Alaska endemic, a, a, a seabird called the Kitlitz's murrelet. Uh, there was a time where I uh, made several trips over to the Western Sound to where tidewater glaciers are to photograph Kitlitz's murrelets. And uh, uh, we'll make trips to photograph brown bears at salmon streams uh, closer to home. And uh, it's just a ma- ma- matter of watching the weather uh, and being familiar with it and yeah, we've got a lot of familiarity with the boat and, and stuff at this point. Um, so you say a 22-foot. I'm like, I want to do this so bad I can't stand it, but I have no, I, I'm i such a newbie. I don't, it's 22 feet. You say that's just kind of like a recreational small boat. Yeah. What's a big boat? Is that 30 well, feet? It's Is all that... it's all relative. Um, you know, people that live aboard boats and travel up and down the coast of Alaska, um, like a, you know, like several friends of mine do, and uh, like a mutual friend of ours that we've been talking about just re- recently, those boats are probably more like forty or fifty feet or something like that. Uh, we know several people that travel the world in sailboats uh, in in that approximate size range, you know, forty footers or plus or minus. Um, yeah, there's a family that's spending their their most of their time in Cordova now 
but he's traveled all the way to Antarctica with his uh, his sailboat. He's sailed around Australia and raised kids and families uh, and stuff like that. So I'm not doing trips like that, maybe in retirement, but uh, right now I kind of consider myself a weekend warrior, making short trips and taking advantage of what's close close to home. Uh, marine mammals, uh, whales, killer whales, humpback whales we see on a pretty regular basis. You kind of never know when you'll encounter them. Uh, killer whales in particular are pretty unpredictable in their wanderings. And so you just have to be ready. You have your stuff with you. And uh, you might be headed to go look for brown bears on a salmon stream, but then you find killer whales and that's what you do the rest of the day. Sounds so awesome. It sounds yeah. like just like the, the dream scenario. So when you go out and you're looking uh, or when you're in your boat you say you can spend the night is that like uh how does that work i mean do you have just like a little cabin in there or how's well, that? Our, our boat has has a cabin and it, it's the the back seats fold out into a bunk and it's just good enough for my wife and i to camp on uh and our dog uh with us we have with us a lot of times uh, so it is pretty bare bones, and we'll have a Coleman stove, we'll have our sleeping bags and stuff like that, anchor up in a protected bay, and, uh, you know, just spend the night, you know, right there. Uh, yeah, it's wonderful. You know, my wife isn't as into photography as I am, but she enjoys seeing wildlife, and she just loves, you know, camping and, and getting into uh, remote places like that. Uh, we'll put two kayaks uh, we have two mini kayaks, like 10-footers, that we can tie to the top of the boat. And that's what we use to go ashore when we anchor. And it's also can just paddle around uh, and things like that. Uh, you, you were asking about you know, what you need to bring. But, yeah, we always have a kayak or two as kind of a landing craft you know, to get to shore. We have to deal with tides that can be up to almost 20 feet. You don't want your boat going high and dry, so you got to anchor far enough in deep enough waters and then paddle ashore and that sort of thing. That's the dream. That is the dream. I <laughs> Come <got>. on over. <laughs> it's like a, Come I've on always over. envisioned like an adventure boat and you have your mountain bikes on it and you have your kayaks on it and you have, you can sleep aboard and maybe a little galley to do your food and then you're, well, it's is not that what quite you call that. it a galley? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we, we're not quite that, but, uh, you you're know, close. We, yeah. And we get to do plenty of neat stuff just because of where we live, you know, because yeah, we're living in a wilderness, uh, you know, where we are. And I, I kind of envision our community as uh, a speck in the wilderness, a little light in the wilderness. Uh, Cordova is just that. It's surrounded by the Chugach Mountains and glaciers and forests. And uh, the nearest town, Yakutat's 200 miles to the east. Anchorage is almost that. And there's a couple small communities around Prince William Sound, uh, a couple native villages Tatitlik and Chiniga and uh, Whittier and Valdez are you know, pushing 100 miles from Cordova. Yeah. So I'll, I want to get more into your photography, but just yep. a couple more questions because this is just so interesting for me too. What about winter? What do you, are you still doing a lot of photography in winter or does it, since it is such a, uh, it's kind of a temperate zone, That's, right? That's what Australia was invented for, <laughs> for Alaskan winter. You go to Australia or Costa Rica or Ecuador. Those are some travels that we've taken for photography. But in reality, uh, winter in coastal Alaska is much different than the interior, where it's below zero. You know, interior uh, Fairbanks is you know many degrees below zero, frigid, dry, relatively dry. Coastal Alaska, we're back and forth rain to snow at best. I love snowy winters, but here in this last decade, they've become fewer and further between. 
Um, and you have to be prepared for a lot of dark and rain. Um, so it's not for everybody. And to be perfectly honest, photo opportunities do drop off in the middle of that period. Um, there's still some opportunities, uh, bald eagles. We have a wintering population of trumpeter swans and sea otters that I can photograph in winter. But realistically, I wait until days start becoming a little longer, uh, like March and you know, late February or March before I start, you know, doing photography, wildlife photography in earnest again. Uh, so there is a slow period and that's what we use to travel. We, we like travel. Um, I like photographing a wide variety of wildlife and I just wanted to be sure that, that we get a chance to talk about that too. I love shorebirds. I love antlered animals, but my photography is not limited to that. I'm really into reptiles and snakes. I, I in fact, uh, snakes and lizards, both, uh, kind of rekindling some interest that I had as a kid and I'm living in the worst place for it in Alaska to, to see that sort of stuff. But in our travels, uh, it's kind of rekindling that interest. And, uh, and if I can travel and do what I'd like to in retirement, I think it'll be spending more time in those kind of places. Uh, my wife and I have now taken three big road trips in Australia, um, this most recent one, just last year, we put on 7,000 miles and covered a lot of Western Australia and uh, got to photograph things like frilled lizards and thorny devils and uh, uh, goa goannas like the parenti, which is a monitor lizard uh, you know, that can be five or six feet long. Uh, just in the marsupials there, the, the diversity in Australia is mind-blowing, especially for a biologist maybe. And I like photographing all of that. So I'm not a specialized bird photographer, and I'm not a, just a big game photographer. I, I enjoy all those. Uh, but I, I love the diversity of life on Earth and trying to illustrate that and trying to engage people with it and you know share it. Uh, I work with conservation groups uh, and try to get my work out there that way. And yeah, I'm interested in all of that. It's very evident. All you got to do is go look at your Instagram and you do see that diversity. It's it's mind-blowing how many different things you have on there. It, you're Well, thanks. That's what I hope people take away from it. The the portfolio being diverse. Uh, yeah. I do. I your uh what do they call it? Your biopic or your ID pick? Isn't uh, that one of those Tibetan foxes? Oh, right. Isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it is. It's Tibet Tibetan fox. So you can go from a Tibetan fox to some random weird lizard from <laughs> far off places, but then I also yeah. saw monkeys. I mean, I've just, I, you, I, I'll put a link in the show notes, so if you don't just look it up after this conversation, you can just go and yeah. click on that and go right to your Instagram feed. We'll get more into that. But let's start with, well, one thing I wanted to say, so when you retire, you're going to go from a liveaboard, semi-liveaboard boat. Is the next thing going to be a Sprinter van that you just can be footloose and fancy free and cra traveling around? Or if, it'll if be it's some international, it'll be... It'll be some combination. We'll have to see what I can afford. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll do whatever I can. It could be living out of a truck and camping and, uh, you know, traveling in the, you know, you know, the lower 48 in Canada, uh, hopefully we'll still be able to do some overseas travel and I'll still be in Alaska, you know, taking advantage of this as best I can. And yeah, uh, some mix of all that. I love the reptiles too. I just have never been out of the country to actually shoot that kind of stuff, but uh, collared lizards and rattlesnakes. And I love doing that. Kind in of fact, stuff. I've seen that on your feed, those beautiful collared lizards. 
uh, in from Southwest Southeast Colorado. Is Southwest it? Colorado. Southwest Colorado. I will be picking your brains yeah. on those because they get. I, I've seen them before in Arizona, but only once really, and. That's a bucket list thing. Uh, you've got some beautiful pictures of those that I noticed on yours. I'm told that the ones in Colorado have the most vibrant color of that whole population. And it goes from Oklahoma to California. And from like... Let me get out my notebook. Where was, where was <laughs> yeah. this? Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll give you the actual pinpoint of where I go for sure. So let's talk about your international stuff. Because if you look at your feed, you obviously have... And you've already mentioned some of the places. But let's start with... Tibet, right? Or or wherever you were at, whenever you got that. It is it is a Tibetan fox, right? Right. Uh, it, it's not Tibet proper, but it, it is the Tibetan plateau. So I, I, I fell into two great gigs that brought me there in a place that I would have never envisioned going. Uh, as, as a biologist, I got to know a guy named Dr. Rich Harris, who had done a lot of research on ungulates on the Tibetan plateau. And he'd made several trips and was comparing populations, doing uh, surveys and comparing changes in the population over time. And in 2002, he invited me, and in fact, I brought my wife Paula along on that trip to the Tibetan Plateau to, when he was going to do surveys again, but he wanted to get photographs of these animals that he's been studying and had no photographs of. And this is not easy. This is high altitude. Our base camp is, has been at 14,000 feet. There's not anything taller than a blade of grass anywhere in view. Um, and the animals are, are basically all wary. And there's almost nothing to hide behind. Uh, so I didn't know what to expect you know, going there. But in 2002, he invited me. Uh, we spent three weeks in the field. And I had free reign to photograph anything that I could. And it was phenomenal. It was hard work. You know, I, was, I was walking 5 to 15 miles a day, uh, got as high as about 16,000 feet. And the Tibetan brown bear, or what they call the Tibetan blue bear, that I photographed. And there's really not that many images of them out there still, uh, t- to be honest. Um, I photographed it the highest I've ever been in my life at close to 16,000 feet. And we saw just a handful on that trip. But on that Oh, and then so that trip led to working with Planet Earth on the Great Plains episode and uh, working with Shane Moore, who we're, we're seeing right now. Um, anyway, uh, we uh, it, the first trip led to this one, and the comp- combination of those two trips let me have access to photographing the Tibetan fox, and that's the, the famous individual that's in the Great Plains episode of Planet Earth, but also Tibetan gazelle and wild yaks. Uh, I've got a, just an amazing story where through binoculars across a valley, we saw a lynx, a Tibetan lynx crossing uh, you know, the, a, a, gr- a grassland, and it disappeared into a gully. And uh, it was about a mile away, and uh, Rich says, Milo, go get a picture of a lynx. So I go, okay, I, I'll, I'll give it a try. And so I had to cross a river. Uh, I started hiking up this slope, and you don't do anything fast at even 14,000 feet. And... Uh, I started walking up to where this lynx disappeared, and there was a little gully in the grassland, a little eroded uh, gully, and I figured it must be hiding in there somewhere. And when I got in the area of where it was, two wolves popped out. I have no idea where the lynx went, but I got great, you know, beautiful pictures of Tibetan wolf. Uh, it was, I think, subadults. Um, it might have been like a rendezvous site because we had heard howling from that direction at night, and. Uh, 
I think they were the, the adults were away, and these uh, uh, sort of sub-adult wolves popped out onto the grassland, and one of them sat next to a rock and let me get some halfway decent pictures. Uh, and uh, wild yak were fascinating. They're on, only exist in a few parts of the Tibetan plateau now, and one of those images uh, kind of led to my, you know, favorite feather in my cap, you know, as far as the publication goes, it appeared in National Geographic in one of the Wildlife is Canon Sees It ads. Uh, so that was very exciting and still is, is one of my uh, you know, proudest publications, I think. And uh, yeah, just kind of little known wildlife, you know, people aren't real familiar with what's up there. And that's also what's neat about it is bringing uh, wildlife from a remote part of the world to, you know, the American public and, or, or you know, to, to publications. And I, I kind of love that my Tibetan fox images, some of them have been stolen so much and used in memes uh, that it's almost comical. Uh, there's nothing I can do about it at this point. But if you want to get a little laugh, do a, Google, a search on uh, Tibetan fox meme, and you'll see mostly my pictures. There's a few other Tibetan fox images that have been used in these memes, uh, but there's a couple images that show up over and over again. They're probably mine. Uh, some of them are actually from video of Shane's uh, that have been used in these also, but yeah, they'll just crack you up. <laughs> they're such a cool animal. I mean, they look really cool, and, and I guess that's where the meme the, comes from, right? Their face is just fascinating. Uh, it's hard to explain why. And I hate to say it's kind of lost on me because I've been staring at those images for 15 years now. Um, but I love showing the, the, the images to somebody who hasn't seen them because that impression, you know, you see it in their face when they look at it. And, uh, yeah, it's just a strange and very interesting looking uh, little fox. So, okay, that, so how many continents have you been to? I, I mean, I'm not as great a world traveler as... As I'd like to be, or, or as many well, others are. Well, as you would are. think from your Instagram feed, you think you've been everywhere. Yeah, I've never been to Africa. Uh, haven't been to Antarctica. Those are both bucket lists. Um, we've made four trips to Costa Rica. Um, we've been to Ecuador once. And then here most recently, uh, we've kind of developed this uh, fascination for Australia, three trips to Australia, and, uh, and then two trips to China. So I, I kind of get focused, like one trip... You know, rather than try to go everywhere I can, I think when I go to a place, my appetite for that place increases and you do research and you learn more and you realize how much better you would do the next time you go back. And so I kind of stumble into this pattern of wanting to return to places I've been rather than to go to everywhere I could. And, uh, and I think your photography and your, you know, the wildlife you encounter improves uh, with that as well. And so, yeah, I've traveled, but not as widely as so many other people have. Well, but in the whole scope of things, I mean, you've been, I mean, compared to most people, you've done seen so some neat much. stuff. Yeah, you've yeah, seen some happy neat with stuff. It. So out of all these travels, what's your most favorite thing you've photographed? Do you have, is it Tibet or, or the Tibetan Plateau and those, those species, or is there another place? Uh, or is there the, a favorite? The, the most recent one probably sticks in your memory the right. mo most, you know, what, you know, just having been to Western Australia last year, you know, those really stand out. Um, and my favorite images from that trip are little fish. Uh, there's a little fish called a mudskipper that we found on the mudflats by Broom. Broom is favorite 
is is famous for its shorebirds uh, that uh, winter our, spend our our winter down there, and I was distracted by these little mud skippers that jump and fight and uh, wallow around in the mud. They're actually kind of pretty. They got these blue spots on them. Uh, so yeah, uh, th- those stand out as some of my favorite recent images uh, uh, that I've taken recently. But uh, yeah, what I photographed on China, in China because it's so unique, uh, really stand out, and because there's you know really much fewer images of those species out there, uh, make those stand out. I got one job right out of grad school on an uninhabited island in the uh, Hawaiian, the atolls, uh, Hawaiian atolls out by Midway, and lived for three months on an uninhabited atoll studying bristletide curlews, but we were surrounded by albatrosses and Hawaiian monk seals and green sea turtles sunned on, our, on the beaches by our camp and stuff like that. Uh, that was another you know, great one. Uh, so the, I was just looking, and I think I was on your page here, and I'm looking at the, what do you call it, a mud skipper? Mud skipper. Is that the one with the little eyes that are just... Yeah, those little eyes on stalks on the top you, of their head. You all got to check out this, because when I saw that picture, I forwarded it to every <laughs> photography buddy. I, I And I didn't know you at this time. I knew of you, and yeah. I followed your Instagram, but you see that image, and you're like, holy moly, that is the cool... I would do the same thing. I would be totally infatuated with those little guys. Yeah. How big are they? They're about five inches long or so. Um, yeah, that's, that's probably about right. Um, I had been fascinated by others' photograph, other people's photographs. There's an Australian photographer uh, named Ofer Levy who does beautiful uh, bird photography. He had a picture of one with a fiddler crab in the foreground, and it just wet my appetite, and plus I've seen other images of them. So I did some research, and I knew they were at Broome, and I knew, uh, you know, because of the shorebirds, we wanted to go to Broome. That's in Western Australia, in the tropics, in, in the northern part of Western Australia. And we went there, and I started quizzing some people on where we'd find these, and they sent us to some areas by the mangroves. And uh, at first, uh, I saw like one, and I go, I'm going to go out there. And I, I can walk around on mud flats around Cordova pretty easily. You don't sink. As soon as I stepped into the mud there, I went up to my knees. And you were going to lose a shoe or, uh, uh, or not get out was a concern of mine. And I went out there. And the thing, they disappear into the mud. They, they were actually kind of spooky. And I sat in the mud for a while, and they never came back out. And I go, man, this isn't as easy as I thought. <laughs> and then Paula had walked up the beach just a little bit further. And she says, Milo, there's a whole bunch over here. And so I went to this area, and there were a hundred of them in the mud flats, you know, flipping and jumping and, you know, doing all this stuff. So I thought, well, I'll give this a try. And so I'm carrying my tripod. I'm wearing shorts and shoes like tennis shoes I'm, I'm letting myself get wet and muddy and uh i have my tripod and 600 and 1.4 converter and an extension tube is how i photographed i don't think i used my doubler but uh you know they're relatively small fish and relatively wary and so i plop myself out in the mud and this is i had to walk you know, 50 or 100 yards out there and um sat down next to a mangrove and then just let time pass and they started emerging around me and then just fascinated you know they crawl out of the mud they start waving their fins around because they're displaying to the other fish you know other other mud skippers and uh 
sometimes they'll just fling themselves up into the air. It must be attracting a mate or a little territorial thing. And then every once in a while, two of them get into it and they open this big gaping mouth. And then two of these, I guess they're fearsome to each other. They may kind of just make us laugh when we look at them, uh, just get into these little battles. And anyway, I was using a lot of glass, uh, and, you know, sitting in the mud uh, to, to photograph that. But yeah, it was fascinating watching these. And I almost became blind to the shorebirds that were in the area. Was, you know, we were in that spot for three days or so, and I spent mornings and evenings uh, in the mud. Uh, when I got out of the mud on after one of those, uh, I, I had noticed when I sat in the mud that yeah, my leg itches a little bit, and I was itching a little bit more, and then I maybe just sort of tuned it out. When I got back to the observatory, the bird observatory where we were uh, staying, I hosed myself off, and I was covered in red welts. There's something in there that bites you. And uh, anyway, to get those images, I got the crud bitten out of me. Uh, it was just covered with, with red welts uh, after one of those sessions. So you referenced whales earlier. Trying to capture a whale breaching is not an easy task because you never know what's yeah. going to happen, right? Yeah. Was it the same thing with those mud skippers? I mean, you said they would flip up in the air. Can, could, did you try to get that? I, I did. I, 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 I did not capture a good jumping uh, mud skipper. The, the fighting is what I did best with. Um, I've seen some beautiful images from Australian photographers of leaping backlit uh, mud skippers. <laughs> uh, that'll be on my wish list uh, sometime. Was there any like precursor to oh that one's gonna go it's gonna go or is it just you like it, does it just happen? It, uh, it, yeah, like so many things we photograph are so fleeting that and you really can't predict. You just have to wait until two started going at it and then just get on them as fast as you could. And they had to be, you know, in the line of the best light and stuff in the right direction from you and stuff like that. And uh, and I just put the hammer down with the motor drive and capture as many as I could and try to get those neat fighting positions and stuff. So you said you took an extension tube. Yeah. Were you that close where you had yeah. to close in your focus? Yeah. I, bring your focus distance closer? I think closer? the minimum focus of that 600 is like 15 feet or something. And with the extension tube, I was able to get to closer to 10 or whatever. And then really, you know, get some tight, you know, frame filling images of a five inch long fish. Uh, so... Yeah, because yeah, real crucial. It's super. Uh, you gotta go check out these images. It's the one thing that I, and I didn't realize. That obviously, you you scroll through so many pictures on Instagram, right? And I saw that image, and I remember sending it to just friends, you know, all uh -huh. the, everybody, all the hosts on Wild and Exposed, and just some other buddies. And I was like, check out this picture. Yeah. And then today, when I was looking through your feed, I was like, I just all came together. That's remember? Milo's. Oh, okay. It's like that is so. I mean, it's like one <laughs> cool. of the ones that stands out in my mind for sure uh -huh. of that work. And then the way you displayed it too on Instagram, where you just see the, I don't know. I have never done it that way, where you can kind of almost stitch the images together. So when you scroll, you get to see yeah. the whole image. That works with people on phones and iPads, where you have the scrolling and you, I, yeah, you can crop them specifically so that you can uh, kind of have a landscape image that you scroll across. And I've done it with a handful of images, and it's kind of fun. Yeah, again, uh, it gives you a better perspective yeah, of what's going on. Right. Because it stands alone. The one picture by itself with the two gaping mouths and yeah. just the eyeballs, and it's awesome. And to make those work, sometimes I rotate, I flip them 180 because that first picture has to have the faces in it to catch your attention. So I think that's a mirror image of the of the actual image, you know, because to you know to grab your attention, you need to see those faces, and then 
uh, you can scroll across and see the rest of the body of the fish. And I've used that with a crocodile's picture. I've used it on a handful of... It's awesome. I, I know a couple other photographers that are doing that. And yeah. I just am taking the time to figure it out, but I'm gonna. So you said you guys traveled 7,000 miles on the last trip? Yeah. How is that? How much time do you need to photograph and travel 7,000 miles and sleep and see yeah. other things? Well, I'll give some credit to my wife who happens to be sitting right here. Uh, I got a very patient wife who also enjoys doing this sort of thing. I've got some wanderlust. I don't think everybody would enjoy driving so much and covering so much ground. But, uh, but anyway, we both like to do that. And you know, some people might be much more satisfied spending, you know, our, our, our whole trip was six weeks. You know, they might want to spend one week or two weeks in one place. Um, anyway, I've got a little bit of wanderlust and I like just moving around and Australia is a big place. Uh, don't bite off more than you can chew if you, if you decide to go there. And, uh, anyway, yeah, we, we do that. Uh, I did a lot of research for me. That's one of the fun parts of travel is doing the research for the things you want to see and learning about what's there before you get there. And I'd done quite a bit and identified quite a few places like the Kimberley, like Broome uh, in Western Australia, uh, the Ningaloo Reef, and had identified several places. So we had some key destinations in mind. Uh, there's some great wildlife resources. In fact, this is a favorite part of photography. Here in North America, we have eBird and uh, iNaturalist. Australia has A-Rod. You know, there's these databases where if you want to see a certain animal, you can do research and, you know, come up with real good ideas of where you might find them. And uh, I do a lot of that before I take a trip. And uh, anyway, uh, we had identified a number of places widely spaced apart and had a rental car, which I ended up wrecking. Uh, at, least, <laughs> at least damaging. What other places are, like Costa Rica's got to be pretty, that's on my bucket list. I've yeah. never been. I really want to go. What was special about that? Well, it's been a little while, uh, 10 years since we've been there now. And uh, it's, there's just great stuff, uh, you know, from primates, uh, you know, spider monkeys and howler monkeys and stuff. Uh, reptiles like basilisk, basilisk lizards, uh, the Jesus Christ lizard that runs across water, this big emerald green lizard that has fins on its back and on its head. Um, you know, we've seen tapir, you know, the large mammal, you know, kind of looks like it has a trunk. Uh, yeah, there's a great, and birds. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's probably best known for its bird photography you know, with toucans and hummingbirds and things like that. And you could be satisfied just going to a lodge with bird feeders and photographing birds. I like a little more adventure and I'll mix some of that into my photography. I'm, I'm not like a great bird photographer. There's so many people that specialize in that and do much better at that than I do. I, I like some of that, but I also like finding things. I like uh, exploring and looking for things. And yeah, Australia or, or uh, Costa Rica has some just, it, it's, it's a, developed country there's a, you know a population there's a big tourism industry there but still uh the preserves and they have been great at preserving you know rainforest and a lot of their natural habitats uh it's not you step off the trail and there it is uh there's a lot of wildlife and uh yeah sloths and things like that that you just kind of know about from zoos or books is just right there in front of you so now you guys are headed to 
Well, is there any other outside that would be interesting stories that you want to tell that you that I haven't? I'm just not familiar yeah. with. Yeah, uh, that that covers kind of the range. You know, about my photography, like I'm not a gearhead. Uh, I'm technically proficient, but uh, I just love diversity. I love experiencing wildlife. I like creating beautiful images of of wildlife and you know exposing them to people and, and educating people and hopefully getting used for conservation and stuff and uh yeah that's that's what i get out of it and 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 hope to do with it that's how i get how i'm how i'm satisfied you know by it and uh yeah just hope to keep on doing things like that and, and that's what i want to impress upon people is yeah not being the most technically you know driven person or, or whatever uh but it's uh, the diversity, you know, I, I like to think that I have a decent diversity of stuff and uh, an understanding of a wide variety of wildlife. And, you know, that's what I want people to see in my portfolio, I guess. So you have a full-time job, but you also yeah. publish images too, right? Yeah, and part-time. Do you do that on a regular basis as far as just having something going all I'm the time? I'm a horrible or? marketer. Yeah. Uh, unlike some other friends like Donald Jones we were talking about, a good friend uh, who's an amazing marketer and an amazing photographer, uh, I'm a terrible marketer, and I think that comes with being an art. Many artists are are, are, are that way. And uh, so I've dabbled on the side since the late 80s. I think some of the first images I published were in Mon- uh, Montana Magazine in the early or in the late 80s. And so I've published reg- on a somewhat regular basis, uh, but a small uh, level uh, ever since then. A lot of it direct marketing. Um, some through a stock agency. So about 10 years ago, I started uh, working with Alaska Stock, and they've now sold to Design Picks. And uh, I get a small amount through them, uh, uh, you know, some marketing through them. And so, yeah, just it's kind of been a side, and it's something I hope I can uh, increase in retirement uh, and you know, get a little more from. But, yeah, I will keep doing it regardless. Right. Me too. What about prints? Do you sell prints like fine art prints? A small sort of number. I've done a you know a, a small number of shows, and then you get requests uh, for prints here and there. But I, I I just dabble with that, and it's probably a very low volume of prints. You know, uh, relatively speaking, uh, I have a Canon. It was an Epson uh, printer where I can do up to thirteen by nineteen by myself. Now I I so much like those metal prints. Uh, and how they look, they're relatively affordable to, to hang. You know, you don't have to get mat- matting and framing, um, and they look fantastic. Uh, I, I like getting prints uh, made like that way now. If somebody wanted to a print like on your Instagram, I just got asked the other day for the first time. It's like, hey, do you sell prints? Because yeah. I've never really, I'm horrible. I'm like you, I'm horrible yeah. at that stuff. So I was like, yeah, I'll do it. But I still don't know what the heck I'm going to do. But could someone look at these, like, I would love that much. Is it Mud Skipper? Yeah. Is that what yeah, that is? Yeah. I mean, just having a Mud Skipper, it was just, it's such an awesome image. Uh, awesome image. Um, if they saw something on your Instagram, could they just they contact could, you? They could direct message uh, through my Instagram page and, and ask request a print. We'll, t- we'll talk sizes and what kind of print you want. Uh, my website, which is milosphotos.com, has an email link. You could email me. Uh, and uh, um, yeah, and, and I, I think I, I list prices for. Prints. I have a, a, a page on my website that talks about prints, and I, I believe I even mentioned metal prints on there. I think I've updated that to include metal prints uh, 
now. I'm the worst at that too. I can't. Yeah. I, I don't even know what to charge. I don't even have a clue. So now you guys are going to Denali. So I caught you on the back end of a, an assignment. Yeah. So you were working in the photo or video world. Yeah. Now you guys, you're not going back to work. Now you're going to go play a little bit, I'm assuming. I don't yeah. know. That's what I wanted to ask you. What are you guys doing? Well, play and photography and hiking and experiencing wildlife are kind of one and the same for both of us, really. Uh, we actually went to Denali on our honeymoon, uh, which was t- 21 years ago. Uh, we lived in Montana at the time, and we drove to Alaska. I had never seen Alaska before, and we spent about two weeks in Denali then at this time of year. So uh, we're... Uh, yeah, so we're on the road system, which is a big deal for us because we live in Cordova. Uh, Paula came over with the truck on the ferry. And, uh, yeah, we're going to do a few-day road trip uh, and hit Denali, look for moose, and maybe do a hike for doll's sheep and uh, what, whatever. You never know what you bump into uh, when you're there. Right. Uh, and we're going to camp and, yeah, just have a few nice days uh, before we go home. So you camp in, uh, what is it, Riley Creek or Savage Campground? Uh, we'll see where, what's available, but we'll probably be at Riley Creek most likely, yeah. And then will you go into the park at all? It, like you don't have a road permit? We don't have a road like permit, and I don't know that we're going to ride the bus or anything. We'll probably just stay at the entrance and uh, kind of with the, the rest of the people, you know, see what we can find uh, in the first 15 miles or whatever that right. is. Yeah. I was up there what, last week, and it yeah. was pretty... The cool thing about COVID is there's not a lot of people. It's mostly in-state people right yeah, now. Yeah, there just uh, wasn't yeah. that many people out there. The bad thing about my trip was yeah, I saw a lot of wildlife, but it was all miles out. You yeah. Know, just, yeah. You see a great big bull moose way out there, and, and actually part of that park is closed for a moose rut, so it's right. you just can't go in. Even uh-huh. if you wanted to hike the two miles, which I would do yeah. if you could, yeah. you can't. So yeah. it's, it's kind of disappointing because you're just at the mercy of this. Yeah, we know what we're getting into. It's fun just being there right. and, and right. seeing what you can find. Yeah. But see, I talked to another photographer, and I think you talked with him today too. He was up there, what, a couple of days ago? A friend of mine just got back yesterday. Yeah, yeah. and he's got... Great image, but actually, giants. He, yeah, yeah. just giant moves yeah. up there. So uh, you just never know. And I heard somebody texted me and said, oh, yeah, they've been seen right next to the road here for the last and few days. And the rut, the moose rut is only increasing right now. You know, we're still more than a week from the peak. Uh, and so, yeah, that they'll, they'll begin, they are getting more active every day. I saw you put a picture of a moose on your last picture on, on Instagram. Yeah. Was that a... A Denali moose? That's an that? older image, and it's actually from right here on uh, Chugach State Park. And it's an, am- an image that I took several years ago in just the perfect conditions. It it bedded in the right spot, and it had colorful mountainside behind it. And right, it's it, a beautiful it, picture. Thanks, thanks. Yeah. Uh, and I was with some other photographers, uh, one of them who I saw today, Kathy Hart, but uh, uh, Alyssa Crandall and uh, a few others were there at the same time. Yeah. So were you kind of just in the moose mode and you're like, eh, I think I'm going to put it. How do you choose? I am like, I don't know. I'm trying this thing now where I'm just doing bears and moose. I figured for the month of whatever, what's today's or September. Yeah. I thought, I'm going to do every other day, but now I've already screwed that up. I've done two <laughs> moose in a row. Well, how do you? It's a roll of the dice. I don't know the strategy of what you should do. I'm trying to show diversity in a portfolio, kind of. I've kind of read that you should kind of keep it current or try to tell stories more often. Um, but no, I'm kind of just rolling the dice, trying to, you know, mix it up 
with from from my stock you know from what i've shot over the years I'll, I'm, I'm mixing some current stuff in uh, in what i'm doing currently uh, in into my feed and probably we'll do a little bit more of that like i'll probably throw throw a few more moose images because i'm working with them a lot right now and will be um but yeah it's I, I don't have a good strategy there we'll have to talk about the best way to go about that i don't either but jason one of our podcast hosts he's very prolific and and has a great following and mark same thing i mean those guys are but they work it so hard and yeah I'm like, i don't have the time yeah i do i have the time i'm just horrible at it yeah and, and that's kind of how i fell into you and the podcast is uh mark raycroft i've met in the field before and when i was just getting into instagram uh he's he popped up uh and he's prolific uh he has beautiful stuff he uses it a lot and uh and then I saw he was associated with the podcast, and yeah, that's. And then I saw your name associated with that, and yeah, that's how I kind of fell into this. And he's actually been helpful. I, you post some things, and you'll get some requests for somebody to use or to use one of your images on a hub or whatever. I didn't know the ins and outs of that, and so I messaged uh, Mark, and he was he's been real helpful uh, with that. Yeah, I don't know how he finds the time to do all that kind of stuff, but he's very good at it. Yeah, so yeah. He's actually our wild and exposed uh, Instagram, chief Instagrammer. Okay. Because he, if he didn't do it, we would be, well, yeah. Jason's pretty good, uh -huh. but Ron and I are horrible, so uh -huh. it's a good thing we have him. Well, it's been awesome to talk with you. We've been going for an hour. You guys got to get on the road to go to Denali, but yeah. I, it was so enjoyable. I just appreciate your time. Well, thanks for taking the time. It was easier than I thought it would be. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's really just a conversation. I've learned so much. And now I, I got, I've got. i never been to Cordova, so I definitely want to go to Cordova one Come of these on days. over. Yeah. And then uh, just the, the shorebird thing. I've heard of, you know, there's the Homer shorebird bird. That's for birders. Too. That's for birders. Cordova's for the birds. Okay, good. If you want to see the birds, come to Cordova. Uh, and it's the first week of May, usually the 5th or 6th or 7th. Uh, I haven't looked to see what the festival dates are for 21, 2021. Uh, go to the Cor Cordova uh, Chamber of Commerce website, or I think just uh, search on uh, Copper River Delta Shorebird Festival, and you'll go to a website that will talk details of when it is and who the keynote, keynote speaker is and that sort of thing. How was that affected this year with COVID? It was canceled. We did a lot of virtual stuff. Okay. Uh, and I, I took over the Instagram page for a few days during the what would have been the festival weekend and uh, shared a lot of shorebird images right, right there at that time period. So uh, locals could do it, and I could probably get there. For that reason, I loved it. I had it to myself. <laughs> right, 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 right. That would be awesome. But... Uh, so I guess if it doesn't happen next year, it'll happen the same way with virtual kind of stuff. But also, if you are an Alaskan, you could probably get there. Although yeah, the ferry yeah. was reduced because of COVID too. Yeah, right? it, it is. Who knows where that will be? Hopefully, the ferry will be helpful in getting there. But uh, we have Alaska Airlines service every day. Uh, is the more practical way, uh, way right now. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday Nothing's gonna get in our way